Welcome to Life-Altering Events with Frank Sakari. When something positive or negative changes in our lives, we are basically at a fork in the road. Where does the next step take us? What do we do as reactions to something that has already happened? How do we prevent the negative aspects from happening again? Whether in business or personal parts of your life, you can get back on track. We'll talk about it today. Now, here is your host, Frank Zakari. Good morning. I hope everyone's having a wonderful Tuesday. We're two weeks from Thanksgiving. My name is Frank Zakari, and you're listening to Life Altering Events on the VoiceAmerica.com Empowerment Channel. Now, since we started this show the last week in July, I believe, people have often asked me, they come up and say, hey, Frank, what exactly is a life-altering event? And this is what I tell them. A life-altering event can be something we either choose or something that's thrust upon us that dramatically alters the trajectory of our life. Now, everyone has had one of those aha moments or events that change your life for better or for worse. These life-altering events occur in every aspect of our professional and our personal life and in the lives of our families. Now, try as we may, it is impossible to completely separate the events in our personal life from the events in our professional life. Believe me, I tried to do this for years, and I failed miserably. The life-altering events present us with, however, is an opportunity to seize the moment and make a difference in our life and in the lives of our loved ones. Life-altering events are a fork in the road. Now, we have a choice. We can choose to fall apart, or we can choose to find the courage, pick up the pieces, deal with our grief, and start moving forward toward better times and better people. Always remember this. It is never too late to have the life that you want and you deserve. As you listen to this show in the coming weeks and months and hopefully years, I urge you to think about participating in an upcoming show. If you have a life-altering event that could inspire others, visit the life-altering event page at voiceamerica.com, click on the button that says email the host, and tell me about the event that changed your life so drastically, how you addressed it, where you are now, and how it impacted your life. We will review it for content, and if it fits well with the program, we will contact you about using it in a future broadcast. Now, this show was just recently renewed for another 52 weeks. So thank you to all the listeners around the world. We now are being heard in 13 countries, and we have over 13,700 listeners. So thank you very much. Now, with 52 more weeks of shows, I need to hear from you. So let me help you share your story with the world. Today, we're going to get into a life-altering event, and the title of this story is Surviving the Unthinkable. Now, as you think through the events of your life, what event altered your life? Just think about the last 19 years. We had September 11th. We have a never-ending war. We have a financial meltdown. We have the collapse of the housing market, two major recessions, corporate downsizing, outsourcing, corporations moving jobs, overseas in record numbers, uprooting of families trying to find jobs. Life-altering events will challenge you in every way that you can possibly imagine. Personal lives are often destroyed. They often end in divorce, financial ruin, depression, 
in some cases addiction, and in the worst cases, suicide. Now, hopefully you've avoided all of these landmines, but the odds are you have not. Today we have two families whose life-altering event was the one phone call that everyone dreads. There has been an accident and your child is paralyzed. From the moment that call comes in, the nightmare never ends. Once you get that call, which I have gotten, which Kim Johnson, who is on the line with us, has gotten, it's now what? What do you do? Who do I contact? When will they know something? How badly is he hurt? How do I get to the hospital? Who do I take? Who's going to take me to the airport? Where do I stay? Coping with the grief, coping with the shock, and now it's a major overhaul in your life. What's worse is the impact on the injured one, who is my brother Steve, and Matt Johnson, Kim's son, who's also here with us today. A lot of questions. Am I going to die? Is this permanent? Am I going to be confined to a wheelchair? What am I going to be able to do? Will they be able to hold a job? How do I support myself? Am I going to have to live in a nursing home? How long am I going to be in the hospital? What's going to happen to my relationship with my significant other? What horrors is rehabilitation going to bring to us? Can I do it? Do I even want to try? The fear moves to panic and ultimately into deep depression. Many, many people will say, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to be a burden on my family. And they just simply give up. For the family, nothing, initially there's nothing to do but wait and pray. You pray for the best and wait for the outcome. There is nothing worse than waiting and not knowing. The fear and uncertainty are overwhelming, but all you can do is wait. And you get the surgery, and then you go through all the fears again. And as bad as things were up to that point, they're about to get worse. Everything you know is gone. The family, your son or your daughter, is going to have to learn how to perform every basic function all over again. Will they have the Herculean strength necessary to rebuild their body, their mind, their life? Will the family be able to provide the necessary support? Most people don't. The majority of people in this situation simply give up hope, and death comes quickly. Well, we have three guests today. Steve Zakari, my brother, Matt Johnson, Steve and Matt were both in their early 20s when their lives were permanently altered by a spinal cord injury. They're going to tell their story. My third guest is Kim Johnson, who is Matt's mother, and she's going to discuss how this unthinkable life-altering event affected her and her entire family. So Steve and Matt and Kim, welcome to Life-Altering Events. Hey, Frank. Hi, Frank. Thank you. And it's my brother Steve. Steve, welcome to Life-Altering Events. Thank you. I'm here. Good. All right. Let's get into this. Matt, let me start with you. Tell the listeners what your life was like before the accident. What were you doing? Not immediately before, but what was your life like? Um, I mean, generally it was school and work. Um, you know, I was uh, kind of bouncing around between majors in, uh, in college and trying to figure out what it was uh, that I kind of wanted to do, um, all the while working 40 to 55 hours a week. And not getting enough sleep. Um, sadly, that trend has continued. Um, but, um, uh, you know, honestly, I, I was sort of feeling a little lost and adrift and, and like I wasn't figuring things out in the way that I should. Um, so a lot of it was um, just sort of trying to 
figure out what I wanted to do in life. I mean, God, I was 22 and single and um, a little directionless. So, Well, you're not the first 22-year-old to do that. Probably not. <laughs> so the accident was a, was a pool-related accident. Tell the listeners what happened. Yeah, so the evening of July 2nd, um, I had a bunch of friends over to the flea bag apartment that I was living in at the time. And uh, we were doing a little uh, 4th of July party. And uh, yeah, there was there was some drinking involved. Um, uh, but but not as much as everybody assumes, uh, which people are sometimes surprised to hear. But I, uh, I, I ended up diving into the shallow end of the apartment swimming pool, which was only about three or three and a half feet of water. And, um, you know, being 6'2", when I'm fully upright, you know, I mean, you can do the math there. And I, I impacted um, on the bottom of the pool because I, I went in almost straight up and down. Um, and I shattered my fifth cervical vertebrae, uh, gave myself a massive concussion, split my head open. Um, and uh, if it wasn't for, you know, my, my friends that were there that night acting quickly um, and correctly in the ways that they did, um, I, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now. What did you think when you, what was the first thought that went through your mind when you realized, oh my God, I'm hurt? You mean like uh, during the accident or? Yes. Um, well, immediately my first thought was, boy, that was stupid. Um, my head really, really hurts. Um, then I went to stand up and my legs didn't work. And that's when the panic kicked in because I knew something was very, very wrong. Um I didn't realize that I'd broken my neck either because my, my neck didn't hurt. My, my head was just killing me, um, for, you know, from hitting the bottom of the pool. And, um, you know, I, then it was, I, I couldn't pull my head above water because I was face down in the pool. And, uh, you know, I was doing everything I could just to, to try to get my, my head over the water line so I could breathe. Um, and, uh, yeah, eventually I just blacked out, you know, and, and, and drowned. Um, and, and the next thing I knew, I was in a uh, ambulance, and, and I got to be honest, I was very surprised to wake up. Um, I thought, you know, as as the lights were sort of dimming and going out, you know, I'm like, oh my god, I'm 22, I'm going to die face down in a swimming pool. Like I, I, I didn't see that coming, and and then everything went blank, and then you know, I, I don't know how much time passed, um, but. Uh, I came to as they were stapling my, my head closed. God, I think it was something like 15 or 20 staples to put my head back together. Um, and then they told me that I was on the way to the hospital. And, uh, you know, I, I had been in an accident, which I remember more than I cared to. Um, and uh, they were going to run some uh, tests and do an MRI and see how bad the damage was. Um, and uh, then everything just went kind of dumb. It felt very surreal. It was like being in a, a very vivid dream, um, you know, and uh, I, I wasn't sure. Everything was so new and it hadn't sunk in yet um, that I, I wasn't sure what to make of it. And I was also very heavily concussed. So, uh, you know, it, wasn't, it was like thinking through quicksand. Uh, things just were processing very, very slowly. So I wasn't sure what to make of it immediately that has to be a terrifying experience it was i i don't recommend it you would imagine not i mean steve 
same question. What what were you doing? What was your life like pre-accident? So my life was a little bit different than Matt's. I'd already graduated from college, and I was working at my first job, uh, working in the retail world, remodeling stores. My job was to travel stores, uh, open a new one or remodel an old one. So that was what was going on in my life. I was 24 at the time, so I was a little bit more stable than Matt was, and I was in a relationship, and things were going really well, and that, um, that all changed. Right, and yours was a, a car accident. Tell the tell listeners what you remember about that. Uh, it was um, August 11, 1985. I was on my way to Delaware to do a remodel, and I was in an accident in the southern part of New Jersey on the turnpike. I never saw the car that I hit, but I came upon a car that was partially parked on the highway with a flat tire. And I never lost consciousness, and I was always... The car collided, I heard the boom... I felt the car not on its wheels anymore, and at some point it started sliding on its roof, and I saw the sparks, and I kept thinking, well, I hope this comes up on the wheel so I can get out. That was my first thought. So it was that practical mindset at that point. Yes. So when you realize this car is not going to flip back over on its roof, off the roof, then what? What went through your head? What was your thought? The car stops finally before I can even move a muscle. A face appears at my window and says, don't move. I've already called an ambulance. They're on the way. He reached in and he turned the car off. I said, okay. So then again, I had no idea there was anything wrong because nothing hurt. I was in my seatbelt, so I never got out of my seat. So I stayed in the seat the whole time, except for being upside down, my head pressing on the ceiling. I really didn't have a lot of pain. How'd you get out? Well, finally, they had to call the paramedics and they had the the jaws of life and they had to cut the door off and again I still don't even know I'm injured I'm just thinking alright I'll just wait and everything will be fine and I just won't move and um, I remember complaining to the paramedic that he's going to ruin my car by cutting the door off <laughs> and he just laughed he goes your car's total dude <laughs> I said okay never mind then alright we'll do what you have to we'll do do what you have to do then and I didn't realize I was paralyzed until he uh, said I'm going to cut the seatbelt I'm going to move you into the stretcher don't help me. So he started to move my legs, and I didn't feel that. I'm like, okay, this can't be good. And I said, I can't feel my legs. because that's okay. Just relax. Don't worry about it. That's normal. So, again, I'm still panicking, thinking, okay, this is not good. So, again, I didn't know I was even injured at how injured I was at that point either. Like Matt said, you don't know. It's just a state of, uh, it's almost a surreal Right. You're above yourself watching, but you don't really know what's going on. Yeah, I don't even know if I'd say that. I was just like, I'm not even sure what to think at that point. Thinking, this is not good. Is this okay? He said to relax. Is this normal? Maybe I'm in shock. I don't know. You know so all this rational thinking is going on in my head. And I'm like, okay, well, well this will be fine. And we'll get to the hospital. Everything will be fine. I've been, I've been injured before. It's not a big deal. All right. We've got uh, about a minute here before this first break, and I'm going to get into Kim. But, uh, Kim, we're going we're gonna to come back after the break because I, I don't want to interrupt you as you talk about the, the parents' view of this. So at this point, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a break. We'll be back shortly. You do not want to miss this next segment. Follow 
follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Frank Zakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Zakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Life-Altering Events with Frank Zakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Well, we're back, ladies and gentlemen. We are having an absolutely amazing conversation with Two families who have had the life-altering event where their child has been injured and paralyzed in a car accident. Now, we heard from Steve Zakari, my brother. We heard his story when he was injured and how he was injured. And we heard a little bit from Matt Johnson and something about his injury and what it was like and where their mind was at the time, not realizing how seriously hurt they were as they were being transported to the hospital. Now, Kim... Kim Johnson's with us. Kim is Matt's mother. Now, Kim, you received that phone call, that one that everybody dreads. Describe that. I what did. Happened? So it was about one thirty in the morning, and um, my ex-husband, Matt's father, had just come in from playing. He's a jazz musician. And I heard the phone ring, and I heard him talking, and I thought, geez, that's really rude that somebody would call us at this hour of the morning. So I was just kind of you know, trying to go back to sleep. And I heard him hang up and I said, what was that? And he said, Matt's been in an accident and our presence is requested at the hospital. And at that moment, my life changed. Nothing was ever the same after I heard those words. And I got, I climbed out of bed. I was shaking so hard, I, I couldn't get dressed. I, I just remember pulling my hands were shaking so badly. I was trying to pull on clothes, and I couldn't 
put my shoes on. And so instead of putting on shoes, I just slid into some ridiculous flower top flip-flops that I had, excuse me, and took off running for the car. And we drove through the night. The hospital was quite close to the house. It was the same hospital in which both Matt and his sister were born. I knew it was a very good trauma center. And we got there, and they had changed the emergency room. So I'm running at 1.45 in the morning. I'm running around this hospital looking for a door that's open and finally got to the new emergency entrance. And Matt's three friends were sitting there, and I was very relieved to see them, and I said, what happened? And they they were just in shock. They were just stunned, and they started trying to tell us and that it was a swimming accident, and my first thought was, well, this is ridiculous. Matt has been swimming since he was six months old. He went to Little Dipper Swim School, where he was one of the star swimmers of, of the school, and how can he possibly have had a swimming accident? So, the they came to get us, and they put us in this little room. This nurse or, or medical assistant took us down this hallway through all these twists and turns and, and put us into this little room, and we sat there not knowing what was going on or what had happened or how he was or where he was or if he was still alive, and then the same person came back, and you lose, there's no time. There's no time in hell. Um, I had no idea how long we sat there or, or, you know, anything. There were no windows in the room. And the person came back and wanted, asked if Matt's friends could come and sit with us. And we said, of course. So the three boys came in and we, we all five just sat there not knowing what was happening. And a doctor came in, the emergency room doctor, and he was dressed in blue surgical scrubs but he had this white hair, white hair, white beard. He looked like Santa Claus, which just added to the nightmarish quality of this entire experience. It's like Santa Claus is sitting here in surgical scrubs telling us that my son's been very badly hurt. And he wasn't going into a lot of detail, but he said that um, he had some broken bones in his neck and that they were running some tests. and that the surgeon had been called, um, and he said, and there's some paralysis. And I just remember sinking into this couch. It was like the couch was not sturdy enough to hold me up at that point. And he said he would be back with some information, and one of Matt's best friends, who was six foot four at the time, just threw himself. I'd known this young man since he was a year old. He threw himself across my lap and just sobbed. And... One of them said, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I said, you're Jesuit boys. Of course, you know what to do. And I pulled my grandmother's rosary out of my purse, and we sat there, and we prayed the rosary. So then they came to get um, Matt's dad and me, and we were taken into the room where he was. And, I mean, here is my incredibly athletic, handsome, strong, six-foot-two son, and he can't move. And he's on this table and, you know, I said, how are you doing, buddy? And, and he said, they cut off my, sim- my new boxers. <laughs> he said, well, we'll get you some new boxers. He goes, but these were new. And, you know, I'm going, you can't move and you're worried about your Simpsons boxers. <laughs> but um, this, this young man came in 
and he was kind of scruffy looking, and I had no idea what he, he looked like a cross between Bart Simpson and Doogie Howser. He picked up Matt's chart, and he said, so, dude, what's up? And as it turned out, this was the brilliant surgeon that saved my son's life. But I guess at 3 o'clock in the morning, everybody looks a little scruffy. And he said he was going to put him in traction, so I had to step out. He said, "It's this isn't going to be pretty, and you need to step out. And I thought, well, how much worse can it be? You know, I mean, he, he I, I don't even know if he can move. So I stepped out into the hallway, and I was just shaking and shaking. And I remember looking at the clock, and I couldn't tell what time it was. And I thought, I'm in hell. In hell, there is no time. It's just ice cold, and I was freezing. Um, and it's July in Sacramento, which you never freeze in July in Sacramento. But this nurse came and she said, would you like a blanket? And I said, yes, please. I don't understand why I'm so cold. And she said, it's because you're going into shock. So she brought me two blankets and I stood there in the hallway with my feet turning blue with the silly flip-flops on. And the original doctor, the first doctor came out and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, I want you to know that we're doing everything we can do but it doesn't really look good. And again, it was just like, if I could just wake up from this, I would say, oh my God, you guys, I had the worst nightmare, but I couldn't wake up. And they didn't know what time it was. And all I knew was that Matt was on the other side of that door. And um, the doctor said, if he lives through the night, we will operate tomorrow. And it's like, what do you mean if he lives through the night? Um, you know, of course he's, you know, he can't die. He's 22 years old. He is the light of my life. God won't take him from me. But, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So then I had to go sit. Uh, Matt's dad left and went home to, quote, get some sleep. And they sent me to a waiting room. And I sat there in the dark next to the window, just waiting for the sun to come up. Because I knew if the sun came up, it meant it was tomorrow, and he would have lived, and they would operate, and that if they operated, they could fix it. And so it was like the longest night I've ever known in my life, and they wouldn't let me go in with him. And so I just had to sit there and wait, and um, it was it was very, very difficult. I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know even what to ask for because I thought if he's going to be paralyzed, if he can't, sports has been Matt's life from the time he was about four years old. His seasons were football, swimming, track, and baseball. And that's what we did. His shot put record for JV is, I believe, still unbroken at Jesuit High School. But we, um, I just couldn't imagine a world where he couldn't move. And that's, I just kept feeling like I was in this terrible, terrible nightmare and I couldn't wake up. And I realized I was, because I sing professionally, I was, I needed to call the church and let them know that I wasn't going to be there to canter the 10 o'clock mass. So I called my friend Joyce and I told her what was going on and she said not to worry about it. And uh, she said, is there anything I can do for you? And I said, call Father John. And by the time I got, by the time they let me back into Matt's room, our priest was there with him and insisted he gave him last rites before they took him into 
surgery later that day. And so that was, that was comforting to have, you know, that, that prayer support. But, um, it was, it's been the worst experience I've, I've ever gone through. And I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it's been our journey. And it's one that, like your family, um, you live because you don't have a choice. That's absolutely right. You, the devastation of that phone call and the waiting is by far the most difficult thing. Parent, oh, absolutely. As a parent, mm-hmm. you're, you're used to doing things. You, you, you're doing things for your child, and now you're helpless. Mm-hmm. And you sit there. Yes. And I can't imagine, I know you well, I can't imagine the emotion when they say, if he survives. Yeah, and it's just like, again, I felt like I was in the middle of a terrible nightmare in which Santa Claus was telling me that my son might not live. And it's just like, you know, I I can't imagine, um, you know, anybody that, it's just the most devastating moment. And you, you just, you don't know what to think. You don't know where to turn. You don't even know what to ask God for. Um, because it's like, if he can't move, is he going to want to continue to live? Um, you know, what is going to be the best thing for him at this point? So it was just, it was absolutely, it was just nothing but, but sheer terror. I, I can't explain it in any other way. And for anyone, other families out there who have been through this, you understand it. And for those of you who haven't, I pray to God you never do. Oh, absolutely. So, Matt and Steve, um, how did the surgeons prepare you for surgery? What did they tell you? Steve, what did they tell you when you were going into surgery? Well, my surgery was delayed for 10 days because they found a blood clot um, immediately upon my arrival at the uh, the, um, the acute care hospital. So they were going to put my surgery off till the uh, clot in my lower left leg went down. So I had 10 days of just massive confusion before they even tried to prepare me for surgery. And what was that like, not knowing? Oh, that's hell, because everybody's coming in and checking you. I was in a teaching hospital, so not just one doctor would show up. One doctor with 15 people would show up around the clock. It seemed like there was just a crew, people constantly coming in and testing you and measuring your strength of your arms and your hands and your fingers. And at this point, I'm like, okay, I'm doing all these testing, thinking, all right, they'll fix the neck, I'll be fine, I'll get out of here. You know, I'm like the third or fourth day, I'm like, okay, no one's actually touched my legs or talked about my legs. So I'm like, what the hell's going on here? And again, I didn't quite register the whole spinal cord injury part. I broke a neck, I know a broken neck takes six to eight weeks, I know a broken bone takes six to eight weeks. Six to eight weeks, I'll be fine. In my head, what was going on the whole time. So my prep was a little bit probably different than Matt's. Matt, what do you remember about that night and getting ready for surgery? What did they tell you? Well, they told me it was going to be two different surgeries uh, because I, I had what's called a burst fracture in the front where the, the front part of the vertebrae, uh, sorry, vertebrae explodes like a grenade. And that burst surgery was just to fish all the bone fragments out. Um, and then they were going to put a piece of donor bone in the front to restabilize it. And then uh, the second surgery was going to be to repair um, the back part of the vertebrae. Uh, sorry, vertebrae, uh, and they were going to put some uh, uh, some hardware back there and stuff. And uh, the the biggest thing they said, because I was able to 
you know, I kind of felt pins and needles all the way up and down. I mean, from my shoulders all the way down to my toes, but I, I could wiggle my toes and, and my ankles just a little bit. Uh, before the first surgery, and they said that, yeah, afterwards, that that's probably not going to happen. Oh, and by the way, um, uh, we're going to go ahead and intubate you. And I didn't know what intubate meant. And I woke up and found out that I had all of these tubes down my throat, something that was, you know, pumping air to my lungs. And then uh, I had a new definition for what lunch was, because they came and hooked up this bag of yellowish and suddenly I'm like, oh, it feels like I've eaten something. Um, and and the whole time, just, I mean, being very out of it because, you know, I was very heavily, um, you know, sedated and, and at the same time wanted to just, you know, just tear all that stuff off me because I, I, you know, just wires and tubes and equipment, sticky stuff and, you know, IVs and just so many things hooked up to me. Um, that, you know, when, when they tell you in advance that, yeah, you're going to go into surgery, it, it doesn't register right away everything that that means. And, um, it was, it was, it was definitely a rude awakening, um, when I came to and just found myself, you know, uh, hooked up to, to all this stuff. When you, uh, Matt, when you mentioned intubation, I'm looking across at Steve sitting across from me and, and he sort of shook his head. Steve, share that. Yeah, I did the same experience. They intubated me in the ER, though. And so I had uh, 24 hours with the tube down my throat. And they took me to a community hospital first before they took me to the acute center where they intubated me at the uh, small community hospital. So you get to the rehab acute facility, and they ask you a million questions. And in my head, I'm like, you, you dumb people. that you realize I can't speak right now? So they do. <laughs> so they do the well, blink yes for twice for yes and blink once for no. So they ask you all these questions, and you know, like probably twenty minutes in, I forgot what was yes and what was no. I can't say I forgot what is yes or what is no. So I don't know if I was answering the questions correctly anymore. So I got frustrated. I tried to pull the tube out. Isn't that fun when you want to pull this crap out of you? You can't because your hands don't work. So I kept grabbing, and they kept pulling my hands down. So I remember that part really well. Yeah, that was uh, no fun at all. Go ahead, Matt. The uh, the worst is because occasionally, uh, you know, there's fluid that gets into that, and then they they hook up this vacuum thing, and it feels like it feels like being punched in the chest from the inside because it just it you just sucks all the fluid out of your lungs and everything, uh, and uh, you just you want to cough and you can't because there's all these these physical barriers to coughing and um, I mean so Steve's absolutely right like you, you want to just tear it out and uh, you, know, you want to be able to answer their questions so that you know you can you can help them help you basically and uh, and, and you can't and, and and nobody seems to realize how ridiculous a situation that actually is um, it's funny now it, it was not then but um, yeah Exactly. Well, we're up against another break. This show is just flying by. So we will come back and we'll continue with Steve and Matt as they, uh, they, they share this experience that, that they went through that hopefully none of, none of you will ever have to see again. Uh, stay with us. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. Frank Sakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Zakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Life-Altering Events with Frank Zakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We have with us... Steve Zakari, my brother, Matt Johnson, and his mother, Kim Johnson, who have went through the nightmare that none of us hope we ever have to experience, and that is having your child be paralyzed, be it in a car accident like my brother or in a swimming accident, diving accident like Matt was. Uh, Steve and Matt were giving us some of the some of their, their background of what occurred and what their feelings were. At this point, Steve and Matt, you're still not sure – what what the deal is? Am I going to walk? Am I not going to walk? What was your initial reaction when you heard the truth? When you learned the truth, this isn't going to happen. You aren't going to walk. What did you think, Steve? Well, my first impression was same thing we were thinking. Kim had said, do I want to live like this? I remember saying to my sister who was in the room with me, I don't want to live like this. How am I going to do this? And all those emotions go through your head. Am I going to get a job? Is the relationship going to work out? What am I going to do? I can't support a family. I'm never going to be able to walk again. And just the emotion just runs through your head. And I just remember, and I actually, for the first time, got a good enough grip on an IV and I actually ripped it out of my arm. And so that was the first time. Yeah, that hurt. That hurts, by the way. Don't do that. <laughs> I, I, I highly recommend, highly recommend you don't do that because it bleeds really, bleeds a lot too, by the way. Um, and just that whole struggle with the whole, I don't know what to do. 
and then just being, you know, crying and upset and and then talking to my sister. The next thing I know, they're patching up my arm and I fell asleep, so they knocked me out. Matt, what was your take on What was your reaction when you heard, when you realized? I, I mean, it was, it, it's tough because, you know, they kept telling me in the hospital, well, we don't know, but we don't know. But, you know, I remember, you know, mom asking, you know, when we got to, uh, uh, the acute rehab place down in uh, San Jose, you know, the doctor said, well, it's, it's day to day. He, he may get, end up getting a lot of function back. He may never improve, um, from what, you know, where, from where he's at right now. Um, and so the, the uncertainty, I mean, I don't want to say that it gave a sense of false hope, but I mean, I guess some hope that, okay, maybe I could, you know, eventually overcome this. I mean, yes, I know it's going to be a long, really terrible road to, uh, you know, to, to recovery, but, um, you know, as as the months went on and, and things were slowly starting to come back, uh, you know, I kind of kept hoping, like, well, maybe, you know, because I was starting to get some voluntary movement in my legs and, and the, the sensation came back. Um, I probably had full sensation back within about six or maybe eight months. Um, for a long time, it was very um, just sort of pins and needles and numb in certain places, um, you know, but... I mean, the, the realization that it was probably, you know, that I was probably never going to actually walk again came several years later. Um, I had done a couple of rehab programs, um, you know, some of which were very sort of physical therapy slash walking intensive, um, you know, and I made progress, um, but the more progress I made, the more that progress started to slow down. And, uh, you know, it, it, it eventually became apparent that I'd kind of reached the upper limits of what I could achieve naturally, you know, without any sort of, um, you know, biotechnological, you know, intervention. Um, and, and then that, that was hard. That's when the, um, you know, the, the depression and the really dark thoughts really kicked in, um, you know, in a, in a really big, bad way. Steve, what was that like for you when you realized it isn't going to happen and, how long did it take to accept that, that this is my new reality? I kind of agree with Matt there. I didn't, I went into denial right away, thinking you're wrong, I'm going to show you you're wrong. And I spent my rehab months just busting my butt so I can get out of there and show them they were wrong. So I didn't really come to that realization until about a year after my accident, that because they tell you, like they told Matt, your spinal cord takes two years, at least a year to two years to heal. The swelling will go down, and if you're going to get any any movement back or any more function, it'll happen in that time frame. So by the end of the first year, I came to the realization that, okay, I have to get on with my life. This is not going to work. And that's when, the, again, the, the sadness and the, okay, where do I go from here? And you just don't know what to do, and you feel lost. And, yeah, a couple of years of just kind of trying to figure out your life. Now, the support system for this type of, uh, of trauma is, is absolutely critical. Now, Kim, as a parent, who was your support system, and how did you put a support system together for Matt? Um, well, we have, um, I, I lived in Sacramento for, goodness, almost 40 years by this time, and our parish, our church parish was amazing. Matt was one of everybody's favorite kids. He'd gone through the school there. He won 
you know, the award, the highest award that the school gives when he graduated eighth grade. Um, he was well known in the sports community as high school, as well as his elementary school, the Jesuit community, the St. John's community. They were phenomenal. Um, my school, um, I was a teacher at Arcade Middle School and the staff really came together and one teacher built that a standing frame and people would come over and visit and I, I didn't have to cook for weeks on end because um, when I would get to school, you know, somebody would tell me, um, your dinner's in the refrigerator, don't forget it. And so I would go home on Friday nights completely laden down with dinners that people had prepared for us. With Matt, it was really important that he um, stay in touch with his friends. And it was really hard because um, his dad left during this time. Um, and there were days when he, I couldn't get him out of bed by myself. And I would, I ended up a couple of nights sleeping on the floor next to his bed because I would sleep through the alarm that I had set because he had to be turned. He would have to have a catheter run. Um, my neighbors and several of Matt's friends were trained in doing wheelchair transfers so that we could get him in and out of bed. Um, cause he was also in a halo, which, um, is a horrible, wonderful device because it, it stabilized his neck so that he could heal. But, um, we had, um, my sister, my parents, um, my daughter was a rock star. She, with Katie, nothing was calamitous during this time. She had just turned 18 and she would make Matt laugh. And um, the two of them, there were times when it was just like, okay, you guys need to settle down here. But, um, you know, she she would help him do his physical therapy. And the little boy down the street would come up and we'd be out walking, you know, I'd be pulling back on the wheelchair to give him some resistance. And Kevin would want to know, what can you move now, Matt? But uh, because his mom told him that when Matt had gotten enough return, he should come down and play video games. So they did, but um, people brought books and movies and food, and um, one of my neighbors took all the carpet out of the house and put down laminate flooring in places where I previously had carpet. Uh, you know, I, I can't imagine somebody that doesn't have a community getting through something like this because, um, you know, Matt's friends were so critical to his recovery, and my friends were critical to mine. And so we were, we were really never left alone. It was a, um, probably the most alone was when we, it was just the two of us in San Jose for months. And I would get, I lost 20 pounds in the first six weeks because I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep. And the nurses sent me to an emergency room where they put me on Paxil and Xanax and Ambien so that I could function. And fortunately, we live in a pharmaceutical age where they do have those. And so one thing that I would want people to know that when you're facing this, you know, no one wants to take pills or, or medications, but under a doctor's guidance and um, under their direction, it made it possible for me to function. And I was able to take care of him and do the things I needed to do because I had to go back to school. I paid the bills and we got home from the hospital on Thursday night and school started Monday morning and I was back in the classroom. That support is absolutely critical. You have to have it. And our family, oh, absolutely. Our family had a massive amount of support also. 
We have about five minutes here, and I, what I don't want this show to be is just depressing and the sorrow that we all went through together. Steve and Matt have accomplished some incredible things to get to, on their own. So, Matt, tell us a little bit about what you're doing, your books you've written, your degree, what you're doing now. Yeah, so since, um, since the accident, um, I earned my bachelor's degree in uh, English literature from the University of Arizona. Um, I then went on to Mills College in Oakland, and I got my master's in English lit with an emphasis on teaching. Um, currently, I'm uh, an adjunct English professor at uh, Sacramento City College, which is great. I, I love teaching there. Uh, I've also um, become a published author. Um, I got a couple of short stories picked up um, in the last few years. Uh, the most notable was I got a, a story uh, picked up by Gravel Magazine, which was great. Uh, also another one uh, published by Johns Hopkins University. It was They were writing a, a anthology, or I'm sorry, they were publishing an anthology um, specifically about disability. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm currently working on a, a couple of different uh, novel projects, uh, science fiction, fantasy, because you know, I'm a total nerd and I love that stuff. Um, but I'm uh, also, you know, still writing short stories, and I'm hoping to, you know, self-publish a web series in the near future. And um, yeah, Steve, for those who didn't hear the the, uh, the story back in August, uh, tell the listeners what what you're doing, what you've accomplished since this event. Um, I uh, had some time on my hands because I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, so I went back to grad school and got a graduate degree in student personnel administration, and I did some work at Fredonia State, helping them with their disability student services. And then I uh, moved to Arizona, and I got involved in a uh, disability consulting firm that my sister, Ned, and her partner were were running, and I kind of was a behind-the-scenes guy. And I've still been working behind the scenes now for my sister, who turned her other job to a new job in counseling. She has a counseling office, and I uh, run her back end there now. And you were also involved in the planning commission. Explain that a little bit. Uh, yeah, I was involved in the Phoenix. City of Phoenix has a planning commission for their neighborhoods, what they consider neighborhoods. It's a big city, and it's broken up into like eight different neighborhoods, and if there are going to be any changes in the city planning. They have to come through this committee first and get their approval. And my councilwoman asked me to sit on it, so I sat on that for several years, and that was an interesting experience to learn about how government works and how it doesn't work. And then I got involved in the mentoring program through the Spinal Cord Association here in Phoenix, and we work with medical students who don't get a lot of exposure to rehab anymore in their training. So they uh, meet with us six times a year, somebody with a disability, and we get to talk about disabilities with them and let them learn about disabilities. And this is through the U of A NAU medical program. So we have about two minutes left here. Um, Matt and Steve, you're both shining examples of courage and grace and unwillingness to surrender. Uh, what advice, quickly, would you give to a newly injured person? Matt, would you, what would you tell someone? Um, it gets better. Um, it's, it's tough, um, and it is probably the hardest. I mean, it's the hardest thing I've ever gone through. I used to think double days for football was a nightmare. Nothing compared to physical rehab, but um, it, it does get better. What would you say? What have you said? I've seen you mentor a number of people. I say it sucks right now, but it's going to get better. Don't give up. 
You got to stay there. You got to stay with it. All right, Kim, we got one minute. What do you tell a parent? Hold on to your faith because it will get you through the darkest of times. And when Matt went away to Arizona, I remember standing on the sidewalk and at first I wasn't sure that I could let him go. And my history part, I told my history partner the last time I let him go, he almost died. And he told me, this time you let him go so that he can live. Mm-hmm. And those words were, were sitting in my, in my brain while I watched those headlights get smaller and smaller and smaller as he drove east towards Arizona. And he was right. Um, you know, you, mm-hmm. it, your life sometimes takes a trajectory that you never expect it to take, but it can still be good. And you just, the important thing is not to give up. And the two of them have been, again, as I said, they're shining examples of what can be accomplished. Kimberly, Kim is a mom. For fellow parents out there, listen to what she said. This is important stuff. Well, we're almost out of time. I want to thank my guests for being here and going through this and letting you, letting them share with you the horror they went through, but more importantly, how they picked up the pieces and have moved forward and have created a very, very positive life and their life is moving on for them. If you'd like to have more information about any of the guests, please contact me at the Life Altering Event page. Press email the host. You can listen to this show if you missed it live on demand in about two or three hours, and that will be uh, in a number of different places, including iHeartRadio, who recently picked up the show. So let me leave you with this. No one's in this alone. The secret to walking on water is to know where the rocks are. And you just heard three people who just told you where those rocks are. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week on the next episode of Life Altering Events. Thank you, folks. Thank you for tuning into Life Altering Events. Be sure to join Frank Zakari again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a life changing week. The Good Cup.